Okay, so I'm talking with Tim McNeely of Creative Cultures. Um, uh, I very much enjoyed your workshop. What was it last weekend? Yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Or a week uh, and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was excellent. I learned heaps. Um, just to kind of start there, how often do you do you do the workshops? Uh, uh, I suppose it's a bit on and off. I've been doing them for about twelve years, okay. and it just depends on where there's a demand. So, like, I'm probably averaging maybe every say two weeks, I run one. Okay, right. And are you? You don't have a have a consistent space where you do it, right? You kind of. Nah, I travel around. I moved up from Melbourne to Queensland a couple of years ago. So I was running them down there and I had a sort of, not a routine, but I had like a schedule where I'd, I'd sort of go to probably maybe six to eight different venues, okay. uh, everywhere from down the Mornington Peninsula, down to the Geelong Bellarine Peninsula to based around Melbourne. And I'd probably do them there every maybe three months. So there was kind of like a traveling circus, you might say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. How have and you found the, here, the... Sorry, go on. Yeah, since I've been up here, I've been up here for a couple of years and it's sort of still not trying to find my feet, but still trying to find a kind of routine that fits where people, where there's enough suppliers in enough uh, workshops for people to do them, but enough people to do the workshops as well. So there's kind of that balance that I'm trying to find at the moment. And I've tapped into a lot of really conscious communities up here. And it seems like in the last few months, there's a lot more people who are wanting to learn the sort of stuff that I teach in the workshops. So it's just been trying to connect with the right people, you might say. Yeah, excellent. And um, yeah, kind of around like Yandina and Yamundi where, where Jim at the Lighthouse Regenerative Farm sells his goods and then here in Woomby. And then it kind of seems like in in this area in particular and then like heading back down the coast a little bit towards more of the the border country with new south yeah. queensland it seems like that there's a lot of interest in those sorts of areas yeah it's more like i suppose i've struggled with uh running them in actually in cities and yeah. it's more like the fringes where you got the community springing up and that sort of stuff where people want to learn how to to preserve their food and like kind of um I don't know, just learning or relearning habits or um, things that we used to do hundreds of years ago. You know, it's if you're in the city, it's all why we want to learn this. Everything's convenient. We've got the shops around the corner and all that sort of stuff. But people who are out in the country growing their own food. They've got a bit more of an interest in, okay, now we've got all these cabbages. What are we going to do with them? You know? Yeah. 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 Actually, just on that kind of you, you, you brought up something at the workshop uh, talking about the the like factory produced probiotic products and how they're kind of they're mostly bullshit can you can you go into yeah. that a bit? yeah so it's it's come a long way like anyone who's seen some advertising you'll see that that pretty much my philosophy is anything that's advertised i don't buy right. uh because they need to push their products uh, there's a few exceptions for that. Like there's ads that for avocados and bananas and stuff like that. They're supposed different, but any, any company that's got a, uh, um, an agenda to promote and push their products on the mainstream is, um, I don't know, in a way they're trying to 
sell their products. Whereas if you've got a product or you've got something that really works, you don't need to really sell it if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's sure there'll be some advertising and word of mouth, but not the way they're pushing and all this stuff and the agenda they're pushing on the mainstream TV, you know? So things like products, like everyone's probably heard of Inner Health Plus, uh, which is you're buying capsules and that sort of stuff. From my research, that's pretty much junk. Uh, there are some good products you can buy now, which are shelf stable, so they don't need to go in the fridge and they contain a lot of strains of good beneficial bacteria. Okay. And a lot of people have probably heard of like a dairy culture called Yukult, which comes in like a little bottle. Yeah. That's a really good marketing company, pretty much. Right. Same with like companies like Red Bull. It's just a marketing company with a product, if that yeah, makes sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 And kind of the... <laughs> Like you even mentioned that 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 some of the um, kombuchas that are on the market, they pasteurize them before they send them out. Yeah, there's there's one uh, that that's available in Australia and it's imported all the way from America, and it sells for about seven dollars a can. And I uh, I won't say the name because I can't. I'm not sure exactly what it is. So I think it was kombucha wonder drink or something like that, but it's right, pasteurized. Okay. It's like it's the most expensive one and it's pasteurized and it's like the most expensive because they had to import it from America. Right. But yeah. It's just like, yeah. So it's, again, it's like, there's a lot of health benefits to kombucha and there's a lot of health, healthy uh, acids and that for your body, but pasteurizing, it's going to kill the good cultures, the good mother and a lot of the bacteria in there that are really beneficial for you. Yeah. It kind of just becomes a, another sugary drink. Yeah. Well, that's all it is pretty much. Yeah 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 um okay so mead is this your mead. more popular ferment yeah there's a bit of a few bottles of it there in the background <laughs> yeah. i've got i've got some big demijohns over here there's another three batches <laughs> of mead on the go there so uh, i'm not giving you my address because i don't want to be raided by any uh <laughs> Well, not bureaucrats, but also people wanting to cash in on my mead supply. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like uh, planning for the future with the mead because it's it's something that I've been doing for um, uh, probably four or five years. Right. And when I first made my made my first batch, it was only like a small batch, and it took maybe uh, three to six months. And then, wow, I drank it all in no time, and then it was like. <laughs> Oh, I've run out. What am I going to do? So now I've made a decision. Then I'm never going to run out of meat again. <laughs> uh, now I've always got some, and then I've got an next batch going and an next batch going. And I've actually got in in that crate there. Which one of that one there? It's got like I've got pretty much a couple of bottles of uh, batches going all the way back to like two or three years. Right. So I'm okay. sort of saving a few of the older bottles. And up the top there, the big bottles up the top shelf. Yeah, like one and a half litre bottles. Some of those are like four or five years old as well. Right, so okay. The trick, I suppose, is to keep, keep making enough so you don't drink it all and then you can save a bit of the old stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. And so like with the older mead, is that going to, it's not going to continue to do the same kind of... Uh, explosive fermentation but 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 the flavor when you when you, there's a bit of an art to when you actually transfer the mead uh into sealable bottles yeah and like one of the batches that i've been drinking at the moment i've probably left it a bit long so it's kind of a bit vinegary okay so you just there's a bit of a balance between bottling it when it's sweet enough 
but not when it's still got too much sugar, because if you've still got too much sugar in there, it'll probably explode. So there's a bit of a, a balance in there, which I'm still discovering. Yeah. But I'm up to batch number, I think I've got uh, batch nine, 10 and 11 on the go, and they're all about 45 litres each. So there's probably 130 litres of me that'll be ready to be ready to drink in the next six months. So that should get me through the next like probably couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. But I'm always looking for more honey and more mead, you know, always I'll always try and have two or three three batches on the go. You know what I mean? Yeah, nice. And yeah. have you found any any particular honey that produces the flavors that you prefer? Or it's kind of, you know, it just well yeah, they're all kind of different. Um a lot of the research says that uh, clover honey is really good because it's a clean kind of sugar, if that makes sense. But I've used uh, a lot of gum honeys and they're really good. They're a bit more complex flavours. And I did a batch with um, Manuka mead. Yeah, right. And that was amazing. That one took, I couldn't even bottle that for over 12 months. The sugars were so complex in there and it turned out to be amazing. And I think that's probably more the, medicinal kind of mead if that makes sense yeah sure yeah it's got, got the manuka in there i do still have a couple of bottles of them but they're under lock and key <laughs> <laughs> they come out for special occasions yeah yeah sure no that's great are you are you familiar with the um oh what's his name uh the guy that wrote the sacred mushroom and the cross no so he kind of he goes into a he, he's he's roughly ex exploring the the uh, early cult traditions that eventually led into Judaism and and Christianity and and things like this, and he makes the case that it essentially comes from mushroom cults in the Middle East, and kind of things started to transition away from being goddess worshipping to being um, uh, like a, a male deity worshipping and they would they would store the mushrooms in honey and they yeah. kind of if you don't dry them properly you're going to have a bunch of moisture in the mushrooms in the mead and you would get a little bit of fermentation occurring so then you've got like yeah right alcoholic or like psychedelic alcohol you know mead um yeah right and they think that things kind of transitioned to where they just kind of stopped putting the mushrooms in and just having the mead and then moved into more of a alcohol cult rather than the mushroom cult yeah but yeah yeah that's interesting like there's so much research and so much history that's all the history's been um wouldn't say forgotten, but there's a lot of history that they don't want us to know about that's sort of being rediscovered now. Yeah. Um, and things like mead, it's like one of the oldest forms of alcohol consumption on the planet. And I, never, I didn't watch that Viking series, but apparently that was mentioned quite a bit through that series. And it's, it's just honey and water. So it's pretty simple. Yeah. You know, whereas beer, you need yeast and you need, you know, all sorts of stuff in there. It's, this is just using raw honey, which has got the yeast in it. Yeah. Uh, and just raw honey and good clean water and then they just that's it you know whereas a lot of commercial meads and i suppose traditionally they used a lot of herbs in there as well so i haven't really experimented with adding herbs into my meads yet i prefer to just keep it simple i suppose and then that's a whole other journey i can go down at some stage maybe yeah yeah well i mean the mead that you brought to the workshop was delicious it was fantastic so yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah.
Um, all right, so um, kind of you talked about it a bit and a lot of people in the space kind of talk about it, but why is it important to use uh, organic um, products or produce for making um, ferments? Well, it shouldn't just be organic products for making ferments. It should be organic products, what we're putting in our bodies. You know, it's like if you look at why we're having all these health issues these days, you know, it's like it's it's got to do with what we're actually consuming. You know, when you look at we call organic, organic and conventional food, conventional or conventional is like normal. We shouldn't be consuming any of that. All the food we should be consuming as, as people is organic. And that's the way nature intended. And that's the way we've been doing it for well, up until probably 50 to 100 years ago when um, the agriculture industry discovered all these um, petrochemical fertilisers and DuPont and all these companies started waging orange. You know, everyone's heard of that. It was used as a defoliate. You know, it's like we're using fungicides and pesticides and all this stuff in our, in our environment that just don't belong there. You know, we're trying to think that we can outsmart nature and do all this monocropping where we've got one crop covering acres and acres of fields and it's just not the way nature works you know it's all about biodiversity in nature yeah. whereas we kind of think we're so clever and all that and then we're it leads to uh soils that are new uh, nutrientless or deficient in nutrients so they've got to keep putting more and more chemical fertilizers on it whereas the old days it was all like everyone was putting their compost on their soils to keep the nutrients in and recycling all the, you know, the cow shit and all of that. It was all getting broken down and going into the soil. And that's like, it was a circular action. Whereas now it's, it's not, it's all, it's, we've got it so wrong. And it's like, it just feels like there's a, a revolution that's happening again, where people are going back to growing their own food, going to farmers markets, you know, and getting food that's clean and eating clean food and noticing how much better their bodies operate. Yeah. And also it goes back to then detoxing all the crap that we've been putting in our bodies for the last, you know, however many years, you know, because that sort of stuff, it stuffs with our endocrine systems and our adrenal systems and everything. It's like, no wonder people are getting so sick and getting all these diseases these days. It's just, yeah, it doesn't really surprise me at all with what's going on when you look at what, what people are eating. Yeah. And some of these ferments can, can help help you kind of digest those toxins and move them. Yeah, or like, for example, kombucha is really good at, um, and also fermented veggies are really good at helping detoxify BPA and plastics out of your body. Right. I know a lot of commercial kombuchas are actually brewing them in plastic. So it's like that whole thing just seems a bit yeah. odd to me, you know. Who knows, who knows what is going on there? So it's pretty much when I'm fermenting, it's either in glass or ceramic or you can do it in wood, but you definitely don't want to be using uh, plastic or even stainless steel for that matter. Cause it, even though it is stainless steel, it will react with some of the, the acids and the, and that in the ferments. Yeah. <clears throat> um, are you familiar with, or do you do any uh, bio ferments for the garden? Yeah, I have a lot. So a lot of my um, ferments that don't work out for human consumption, they all go into the garden. Yeah, um, nice. There's uh, a good mate of mine, Shane, who lives just around the corner in Dune, and he makes um, enzymes out of a lot of foods, scraps and that sort of stuff, which are really good for the gardens. Yeah. Uh, there's a pretty simple one you can use, which just uses um, 
I think it's lemon and citrus peels and you put them in water and you let them sit for six months and then that creates enough enzymes and you can use any fruit scraps pretty much. Uh, I think because they've got a bit, a bit more sugar in them, but you can just let them sit in a container for 12 months and that will have enough um, enzymes in there to help ferment. Another way I used to do it was just cutting down weeds and thistles or even seaweed, putting them in a big sealable bucket, filling them up with water. And then after six to 12 months, you could then dilute that and use that as a fertilizer. And that contains an amazing amount of enzymes in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been um, looking a bit into this guy, Jerry Gillespie. I've done, an, I've done a couple interviews with him and he kind of focuses on ferments for the garden. Uh, he's done a lot of work in like using both weeds and also in um, uh, invasive animals and like turning the animals essentially into a fermented foliar spray to like spread across your fields. <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's it has amazing results. Like it's 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 phenomenal. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's a little gory. You've got to you've got to macerate these invasive animals that you're that you're collecting. So it's not it's not for the faint of heart for sure. Yeah, and I, I found with my veggie garden, I found just putting a net over it stopped the birds and the turkeys getting in there. Yeah, that was, that was, you know, <laughs> and like uh, I've just put a whole lot of banana plants in and. Some of the wallabies started eating the leaves, so I just had to put some protection around them. But in a way, we've, we're in their space, in a way, and we're trying to think they're invasive and we're the ones who are the invasive ones, you know what I mean? So you yeah. try and work with them rather than trying to kill them or, you know, it's like that is a bit of a, a well, another experiment itself. You know, when I first got up here and set up the veggie garden, there's turkeys everywhere and caught a few and moved them and then as soon as you do that some other ones come back and it's like my mate's going just kill them i'm like no 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 that's not gonna solve the problem and it's like it's it's kind of working with nature rather than trying to fight it and that's why we've got gone down this this direction we have for the last 50 100 years it's all about human domination over over nature you know we are nature when you come back to it we are you know natural natural beings you know we want to work in that whole synergistic community with with nature yeah yeah absolutely yeah um so just want to go into a little bit of like um storing and lifespan of different ferments um uh something like sauerkraut you can pretty well keep that forever can't you yeah well i haven't I haven't had any that's gone off uh, and some of it's been probably going for uh, five years or so. Right. Uh, the longer you store it, it'll probably lose a bit of its nutrient value. Okay. Uh, and the flavor profile definitely changes. Uh, but as in a way of storing food for long term, that's probably one of the best ways of doing it. And if you've got access to somewhere that's... Um, uh with a stable temperature like we used to have most houses used to have like a larder or a cellar where you could store stuff down underground pretty much at a stable four to six or seven degrees then i would say it would last a lot lot longer like most of the stuff that i've got that has been four or five years it was in melbourne in a shed in summer so it was getting to about 40 degrees and it was getting to minus in winter and it's kind of like that's probably 
one of the ways not to store it long term, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So finding somewhere a bit more stable, but up here in Queensland, it gets more tropical as well. So I'm just trying to think about this the other day. What's the best way to to store foods, even not fermented foods, but just nuts and grains and seeds and that sort of stuff longer term, you know, whether you dig a big pit and you dip and you put them in there or whether you just find somewhere with, you know, that's sort of what I've been thinking about is what's the best way to, to store stuff up here without, you know, building a, an underground cellar pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Cause up here, you've also got the issue of humidity, which, yeah. you know, that, makes makes any um uh perishables more perishable yeah so things like sauerkraut if they're in sealed jars and pretty much a lot of stuff if it's in a sealed jar or a sealed container it'll be fine yeah. it's just where you got airflow and like even like everything up here last year got a bit moldy clothes and after we had those big floods and there was no airflow and there was no sun for like a week everything got a bit you know a it wasn't too bad where we are, but I know like a lot of people around Lismore where they had the big floods, they had to pretty much chuck everything out. You know, it's like it just yeah. got really bad down there. So I suppose we've, again, it's another thing that we're living in an environment where that happens over summer and just being aware of that, you know, whether you get a dehumidifier or whether you, you know, just take certain actions to prevent that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something like Vili, which is the Icelandic yogurt culture, that doesn't yeah. last very long, does it? Um, no, probably not. It probably lasts in the fridge for maybe a couple of weeks. Okay. Um, it's one that you probably need to keep making a batch. Yeah. Whereas other milk ferments like this one I used to start, I started with, with which was um, milk kefir, that like, once you ferment that, that'll last in the fridge for like 12 months. It'll continue to get a bit sourer, yeah. but it'll be fine to drink in the in the fridge, you know, whereas the Vili, after a couple of weeks, it'll separate and then it gets starts to get, it gets really sour. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But when you make it, it's like, it's one of the, it's so creamy and sweet to drink. And it's like, it's, it's so unusual as a yogurt because normally yogurts go a bit tangy and tart and sour, but the Vili yogurts, oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like you're drinking something that's alive. It's got a it's got a yeah. very strange texture to it. Yeah. 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 Um, something like uh, uh, tapache. How long would that last? Uh, I can drink it in about twenty minutes. Is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you saw how it didn't last on the workshop. Like. Yeah. Um, Tapache, for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a pineapple drink with a bit of cloves and cinnamon in there. So it's like a spicy uh, pineapple drink with a, it's got a little bit of alcohol in there, probably only like one or 2%, but it's so refreshing. Mm. Uh, pretty much if you make that and it takes about three to five days to make, then I've had a batch that stored in the fridge really well for about two months. Okay. And that was the one that we tried at the workshop. So I, I assume that because it's um, been refrigerated, you probably last up to maybe six months or more in the fridge. Right. Okay. But it's never lasted that long. Normally, it's like a month, and I find it in the fridge. You go, oh, I better have some of this, you know. Then I have a, have a bit, and then it's all gone, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We made a we made a small batch the other day, and yeah, there's <laughs> there's not much of it yeah. left. <laughs> Actually, going back to that conversation we were talking what, what we were talking about before about the mushrooms in the honey. Yeah. Someone gave me some before I come up here. Some amanita mushrooms. Okay. 
that have been, um, oh, what's the right word, decarboxinated or something like that, where it's had the, the volatile poisons pretty much taken out of them. Yeah. And it's been stored in honey, and that's probably been going for maybe four or five years. Right. So I haven't really dabbled with the Amanitas. They're sitting there like when they're ready or when I'm ready or when it's ready, I'll have a go with them. But there's something like that's just like they're just sitting there waiting, you know. Oh, yeah. goodness. Yeah, no, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, do you know how they removed the alkaloids? Like the nasty? Um, they told me, but I can't remember. I've got their contact details, but they told me how they do it. There's a couple of processes where they do it, where they either heat them up or whatever, but they they do it where they're shelf stable and lock up. Yeah. That's a whole tub of Amanitas. Yeah, right. But they, they weren't in a sealed container. So, and there's nothing, like I've had, I've, haven't tried them, but a mate of mine's tried them and he said that they just don't do anything. So they're probably going to end up going into the garden. Right. Okay. Yeah. They smell pretty good, but I don't know whether you'd, you know, if there's much, um, if many of the active compounds are still active, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Or whether you might put them in a tea and just have a, a shitload of them and see if they do anything. I don't know, but they're there if you want to experiment with them. <laughs> Yeah, no, because I know they kind of like in a traditional sense, uh, the shaman would eat them and then the people in the ceremony would drink his urine because his yeah, body right. would then process the nasty parts and you could get six lots of like urine from him, six passes and it would Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I've got actually got about... Oh, maybe a dozen books on um, Shivambu or urine yeah, therapy. Right. Yeah. And of something that I've been practicing on and off for quite a while. And like all my urine, I pretty much save it and it all goes into the garden. I dilute it and it's got all the nutrients in there to go into the garden. And it's all like all this stuff that we think is taboo topics and all that. But it's like it's the way nature works. You know, you look at all the other animals, they're peeing out in the in nature and like anyone who knows who's got a lemon tree that's where all you, you piss on your on your lemon trees and it just it just it's putting the nutrients back in rather than flushing them down into some chemical sewage treatment plant you know yeah but then again saying that uh, i know that um traces of like the pill are found and like a lot of pharmaceutical drugs are found in in urine so again yeah that sort of stuff you don't really want to be putting in nature. So if you're pretty clean, it's probably a different story. Yeah. Uh, but it also depends on what you're, what you've been consuming, what's in your body. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we had a, we had a grapefruit tree back in Mombok and it was kind of the central spot for us to piss on. And yeah. <laughs> they were the best grapefruit. I've never had yeah. better grapefruit than the ones off that tree. It, it, it got a lot of nutrients, it, you know. Yeah, so your, your grapefruit tree was the shaman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, all right, so we've roughly got about 10 minutes left. Um, okay. I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about a potential apocalypse or just supply chains crash. It's difficult to get, you know, your, your standard foods. It's, you know, it's, it's starting to get harder and harder to, 
to get the things that you might, you know, make your supplies with or or whatever. But say you yeah. saw it coming, you know, maybe a month or two in advance. Yeah. What are some like what what are the three or five or whatever ferments that you would prioritize? Well, I probably wouldn't look so much at ferments. I'd be looking at stocking up on some staples that are um, uh, shelf stable, things like rice. Okay. You know, I don't eat a lot of rice, but things like that that you can live off. You know what I mean? And like other things I'd say is if you're living in the city, get out. If you haven't got a veggie garden, start one now. It's never too late to start a veggie garden and try and be as um, self resourceful as you can i suppose and i'd start tapping into networks of other people who grow food that you can maybe swap or barter with um as far as things to stock up on like grains and seeds and things like that and beans because they're all shelf stable yeah uh nuts and seeds some seeds are shelf stable some nuts will need to be kept in refrigeration so you've also got to look at how much um room you've got in your fridge or your freezer to store that sort of stuff but really you want to look at things that are non-perishable uh, that store really well. Uh, like if you look at the containers at the top there, uh, a lot of that is just things that like bicarb, which you can't eat, but I've also got like chickpeas and beans and stuff like that. So I'm about to put another big order in with a company down in Melbourne called Terra Madre and they do wholesale orders and they ship up here and it's like, it's about a dollar. 20 a kilo for shipping. So I'm going to order probably 100, 150 kilos worth of stuff off them. Right. And it's only going to cost a couple hundred bucks to get it all up here. Nice. Uh, and just in a way, I suppose, being prepared, even though I'm not a doomsdayer, I've sort of gone through all those stages, but I, you see what is happening on the planet with, I think on Sunday in France, the biggest wholesale fruit and veg market caught on fire. Oh, shit. Um, right. so there's, and there's been supply chain issues happening all over the planet and they're probably going to get worse. Yeah. And I think of a lot of it's by design. Okay. So if you live in a city, supermarkets, if there's any issues, will pretty much run out of their food within one to three days. Yeah. So most people don't really think where their food comes from. So, and even just getting a small herb garden or something like that is great. And also looking at buying a few books or finding out about wild weeds, what weeds are in nature that you can live mm. off and eat. Yeah. But also watch that book uh, Into the Wild, which I watched a couple of weeks ago again. And it's all about this guy goes out in the bush and he ate the wrong weed and it was a, a some sort of potato root and it ended up being very, looked very similar to the one that you could eat. And he died from it. So you want to be careful with that, but you also want to be aware of what is in our environment that can we can eat that we've been eating for thousands of years that you think of as weeds, like things like dandelions. Everyone thinks you can't eat that, but it's mm. it's so there's so many nutrients in it. You know, we think, oh, it doesn't come in a plastic bag from the supermarket. We can't eat it, you know? Yeah. So they're just, I suppose, a few of the things that that you could top up. As far as ferments go, well, I've got enough mead to keep me going for a few hundred years, I reckon. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of batches down here of my fermenting crops. I've got a couple of batches of kimchi in there. There's some carrot and ginger in one of them. And I'm about to do another couple of batches in the next week. I'll probably do a bit more kimchi while I can still get the... Chinese cabbages and some more carrot and ginger, but all that stuff uh, would last for years, you know, but I do sell a bit of it. So I've just sort of got to manage, I suppose, having enough 
stock to keep for me and also selling enough because everyone sort of they get a bit angry if i make kimchi and don't offer to sell them any you know so it's got there's a bit of a balance in there yeah yeah <clears throat> and probably yeah yeah so like it it it, it 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 probably also comes with a bit of bartering power it kind of yeah absolutely it's an additional yeah. resource having yeah. extra large supplies that feed you and you can also then be like well I'll trade you for some fresh produce or I'll trade you. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I've got, I've just been going through, these are all my seeds and I've got a really good seed bank of a lot of heirloom seeds. And I've just been sort of been going through my garden and planting a heap of stuff. And just like seeds are like, they're, I think Monsanto now owns the rights to 95% of seeds on the planet. Right. And we're losing all this biodiversity. You know, there's like hundreds of different types of beans, for example. And we only, you know, we only probably know about, we only consume maybe four or five, you know, there's just like so many different heirloom, um, non-hybridized seeds out there. They're going to be worth gold as well. Yeah. You know, another thing's like, uh, another thing I look at what your water supply is, you know what I mean? A lot of people say, Oh yeah, I'm on tap, I'm on tap water, whatever, but you really want to have a backup supply of water. So I've, I've got a water distiller so I can make distilled water out of whatever source, you know, out of rainwater, out of dam water, out of, um, um town water and it takes everything out it takes all the chlorine and fluoride and all the pesticides and chemicals out of it so that's another uh backup tool you can get and you can buy them for like 120 bucks on ebay right okay so so using a distiller will remove fluoride yeah yeah because i know yeah, pretty much like that's a difficult one to 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 remove yeah not many filters will get it out yeah but um distilling it will it just steams the water and all that's left is the pure h2o pretty much and all the chemicals like in my in my distiller once i distill tap water from town which has got chloride and chlorine and fluoride in it the smell of the residue that's left in the bottom is it's really rank yeah right whereas if i use the, the tap the tank water it's got a bit of residue but it doesn't smell as bad but you definitely want to filter your rainwater with all the crap they've been spraying in the air yeah okay so no, filter water is great, but like just in case, you know, just have a backup plan for water as well. You know, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you do you re remineralize your distilled water? Yeah, I put a pinch of um, sea salt in there, yeah. and a bit, bit of bicarb, and then I swirl it round in a vortex and do a bit of a a prayer or meditation on putting my energy back into the water or putting some love back into the water. So when I'm drinking that, it's all going back into my body. Ah, excellent. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your knowledge, Tim. I really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. It was great yeah. to connect with you at the workshop too. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Like you are, you you present the information really well and easily and uh, you're an entertaining presenter as well. <laughs> Good. I try and make it a bit, a bit lighthearted, you know, rather than then you add 2.4 grams of this and then yeah. it's like, no, 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 you got to have a bit of fun with it, you know, and like the tastings are a big part of it. Once people taste the ferments, they're like, oh, I want to learn how to make mead and oh, I want to learn how to make tapache and kimchi and all that. They're like, they're a bit, pay a bit more attention, I suppose. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so you've got a workshop coming up at the Lighthouse Regenerative Farm early October? Yep. Yeah, I've got two. I've got one in late October and one in early December. So let me just quickly check the date. So the one in October is on 
the 23rd of October. Yeah. And then again on the 4th of December. And if anyone wants to know about the upcoming workshops on Facebook is my page, which is Creative Cultures. And it's got links to all the different workshops because I've got some coming up on the Gold Coast and I'll probably do some in Byron and around Brisbane and also head up to Harvey Bay and all that sort of stuff in the next, probably before December. Excellent. So people can check out the details there. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tim. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Have a lovely day, my man. We'll talk soon. All right. Beautiful. Bye. Bye.